Welcome to A History of the Inca. An interview with Helen Pugh. Hello and welcome once again to A History of the Inca. I am your host, Nick Mashinsky. It is an unfortunate fact that women in historical accounts are often glossed over, left on the sideline, or left out completely. This certainly isn't the case in every account, but certainly it is the case for many. And it is certainly the case in Inca history. Historical accounts from the Spanish chroniclers and indigenous accounts often focus more on the Sapa Inca, the army, or the riches of the empire. Little is said about the women of the empire. Sure, there are snippets here and there, but generally speaking, it is often one-sided. And it is a simple fact that this podcast reflects its sources. However, author Helen Pugh has put women of the Andes and the Inca Empire to the forefront of her book, Intrepid Dudettes of the Inca Empire. Helen is someone I have wanted to interview for a while, and after weeks of trying to schedule a time that would work for both of us, I was able to sit down and talk with her about her book. Enjoy. So I'm here today with Helen Pugh, author of Intrepid Dudettes of the Inca Empire. Helen has long believed that it is important to rescue historical women from obscurity and make sure that her story is taught alongside history. Helen, thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Now, I want to talk about your book. Uh, It's been out for a little while. I admit it's been on my reading list for for some time. Just been a bit busy with life and and general reading for (laughs) and general reading for the show so the subject of women is not really touched upon not only in terms of inca history but i guess you could expand that to world history could you perhaps give us a little bit of an idea why you chose to take on the subject and maybe what inspired you um sure so um the reason I chose to um, focus on the Incas is um, because I studied Spanish at uni and then I lived in Ecuador for about for over seven years. Um, and my sons are half indigenous Ecuadorian and their heritage is really important to me. And part of that heritage is the Inca empire. Um, and then the reason I chose to focus on Inca women um, is because, as you said, they're often omitted from the historical records. Um, And even throughout the ages, the um, historical studies uh, of the Inca and and in general have mainly focused on men. So, yeah, I think it's it's really important to um, focus on historical women who uh, wielded a great deal of influence as well as the men. Yeah, I certainly agree. I think your book is really, really refreshing uh, in the sense of how it's written. It doesn't have a lot of, you know, the technical jargon that I'm used to reading through uh, through some of the sources and in the sense that it puts women in the spotlight, which again, doesn't happen too often. I imagine it was sort of difficult finding necessary sources and, and records to look through when gathering information uh, for writing your book. Could you tell us uh, or touch upon some of the sources you used? 
Yeah, sure. It was really difficult. I mean, sometimes it would be sort of like an hour of research to write like one sentence. Um, and I had to use so many different sources um, because, you know, one book or article, it would just be like one sentence that was really useful. Um, and that's why the bibliography in the book is, is very much a selective bibliography. Um, otherwise, it would just be massive. So with the books and the articles, I mean, I can recommend any of the ones I've listed, um, particularly two historians kind of stand out for me, uh, which is Maria Rostborowski, um, a Peruvian historian, and she did extensive research into the Incas, um, and Sara Beatriz Guardia, she also stands out. Um, and then the websites, the Real Academia de la Historia website um, has biographies of various people on its database, and that's a really great resource, but it is really limited for Inca women. I actually wrote two pieces for them, uh, so they are interested in extending their database if um, any listeners or yourself wants to submit anything to them. So yep, so those are kind of the sources, and then there were other times that I was just trying to sort of tentatively piece things together based on what we knew about other people, especially the men, so kind of like researching the women in a kind of roundabout way. So, for instance, um, with one of the empresses, Kushirimai, um, I was trying to figure out when she was born and I was kind of basing it on when her parents married and when she married and then um, just giving a, a rough estimation of that. Excellent. Thank you. You pronounce Maria's last name far better than I have stumbled through on this show. I've used, <laughs> I've used her work in, in some of my episodes and the the work that she's put out in English anyways I know much of it is in Spanish which uh it, my limited ability as far as reading goes sort of limits some of the the work that I can read from her but I love that you've provided us with those sources here in your book so we can go and and the great thing about the internet is sometimes you you can simply translate a page and so if it's in a different language so uh, listeners, if you're intimidated by any of that, please uh, don't don't be. I think it's a great tool. So I want to get back into a little bit of about the women and some of the roles uh, some of these dudettes played within the Inca Empire. And, and let's specifically look at the role the role of the queen or the koya. And you know, people have said you know it's good to be the king, but how how good was it to be the the koya? in the Inca Empire? Um, yeah, I mean, generally speaking, the women in the Inca Empire had more, um, had a better situation than their European counterparts at the time. And I'd say that's true of the Koya compared to like a European queen. So the Koya, for example, would have led all women across the empire in worshiping Kilia, moon goddess. Um, and in fact, every Koya in turn was considered to be the earthly incarnation of Kilia. And she would have been greeted by people as daughter of Kilia, one and only Koya, friend of the poor, which is pretty good, I, I think. I wouldn't mind being called that. Um, and so this was in parallel to way, the way that the emperor was leading the worship of Inti, the sun god. And aside from her like religious role in that sense, um, she also would wield a certain amount of power, especially over other women. Um, she was seen as like the, the leader of, of all women in certain aspects. Um, her role also involved advising the emperor on all sorts of matters. Um, and she would rule the whole empire as a regent whenever her husband was off fighting, which happened fairly regularly. 
And then if the emperor and his top leaders couldn't make a decision, she could intervene as a mediator to try and uh, find a compromise or sort of go one way or the other. Yeah, and so she would be held in great esteem by everyone across the empire. So how does that really contrast or or compare with uh, women in general throughout the empire? I know we've touched on in the show about some women being treated as property in the sense of the Sapa Inca uh, giving away young women to nobles after a conquest, for example. Uh, did women, did other women hold titles or, or positions of power outside of the Koya? Uh, yeah, so um, women could become priestesses, for example. So um, particularly in the book, we have uh, Mama Sarpai. Uh, who was the high priestess of a goddess called Apurimac. Um, so priestesses were celibate women, um, highly respected for their roles, and they would generally lead worship in women-only cults. So in that sense, there was some autonomy from the men. Um, and then, of course, among the priestesses, the Akyakuna were even more respected. Um, so they were women of any social class, could be chosen to become Akyakuna. Uh, chosen around eight or ten years of age for their beauty and or talent, weaving, for instance. So again, these are celibate women, but generally speaking, dedicated worship specifically to Inti. And while they live secluded in the Aklawasi, they did go out a fair amount for to participate in festivities or sacrifices. So those are some religious roles that men, that women, sorry, could hold. They could also become the wives of high-ranking men. So okay. Maybe they haven't chosen these marriages, but it did bring a certain amount of um, status with it. Some women could be curacas, which means local leaders. Um, so my biggest example of this in my book is contaruacho. And so this job included overseeing work in a particular region, making sure people paid their taxes and approving any marriages in the area. And they would also um, act as ambassadors for their people so they could advocate for their people to those above them in the Inca hierarchy. So yeah, those are some good roles. And then obviously the um, non-elite women were um, less likely to um, get into uh, roles of leadership apart from the Aklakuna who could come from any background. So typically the non-elite women would be working in the fields, cooking, weaving, looking after children and anyone else who might need looking after like old or sick people and cleaning the house. Um, they could also own land and herds. And so um, these tasks, they were seen as equal, of equal value to the tasks that men were carrying out, which again is, is different from how European women's tasks were seen at the time. So I want to get into some specific women from your book. And I want to start with uh, Mama Oklo. Uh, she's, a, she's my personal favorite. She's the one that's most written about in sort of the sources, and you acknowledge that in your book. If you had to pick one Dudette as your favorite, or one you'd like to at least meet, uh, who would it be and why? Yes, in terms of a favorite, like, I personally couldn't pick a favorite, because especially when you're comparing, like, the women before and after the conquest, lived through such different sets of circumstances. And then there are sort of women, like you say, who you get way more uh, information about from the text and then the other other women are more obscure so it's kind of hard to compare but I certainly feel closer to the women that I 
could find more things out about, like um, Kisbe Sisa and Kushirimai. And in terms of who I'd want to meet, either of them would be amazing because I feel like they could um, fill in the gaps for me about their own lives and the experiences of the Spanish conquest in a more general terms. Um, and they also might know more about the past generations of Inca life that they could um, pass on to me. <laughs> oh, definitely good examples. And I want to, I really want to touch on this sort of transition uh, between indigenous life and then when the Spanish came. We're not here, we're not quite there yet in our narrative, but we're going to get there pretty quickly. And so how did the roles of indigenous women change once certain groups decided to side with the Spanish over their uh, indigenous counterparts? Yeah, so um, one example of two women who um, sided with the Spanish, we have Quispe Sisa and her mother Contarwacho, who come from the um, Huaylas people. So Contarwacho uh, allied with uh, the Spanish during the siege of Lima and sent troops to help her son-in-law Pizarro, Francisco Pizarro. Um, but unfortunately, she disappears from the records straight afterwards. So we don't know personally for her whether her life improved, worsened, did she die soon afterwards? Um, and then as for Quispe Sisa, she gained more status through her common-law marriage to Francisco Pizarro but she ultimately suffered greatly at the hands of the Spanish, losing custody of two of her children, domestic violence, being accused of witchcraft, and so on. And then another uh, set of women who were involved in an alliance with the Spanish were the uh, Huascar faction of the Inca royal family. So they sided with the Spanish initially under Tupac Hualpa and Azarpay as like a puppet Inca emperor and a puppet Koya, uh, and then um, with the same roles, Manco Inca and Curiopio. Tupac Hualpa died before the Spanish could do very much to him. Uh, Asarpay was killed by the Spanish under Quispe Sisa's insistence. And that's an interesting thing to see how the tension between the different groups you allied with the Spanish, kind of like an example of that. And then Manco Inca and Curiopio, they were ultimately abused by the Spanish through things like rape, imprisonment, and humiliations, and that's what ended their alliance. Yeah, so those are some of the ways in which uh, indigenous women, those are indigenous, uh, elite indigenous women, for sure, but those are some of the ways they could suffer under the Spanish. Yeah, it was very interesting reading this part of the book because I know quite a bit about what happens up to 1532, and after that, often not that's where the textbooks tend to end things in the Inca empire. And that's not, not really the case. Yeah. There's certainly, there is certainly quite a lot that happens afterwards. I'm really looking forward to uh, digging into that. Some of the roles that women played in terms of the, the factions with one Panaka siding with the Spanish and one sort of retreating into, uh, into the forest there to set up the neo-Inca state. Uh, all that is very uh, fascinating and something I don't know a lot about at this point, but I'm looking forward to getting into. So can you tell us about some uh, other women from your books, perhaps someone um, that you personally identify with or, or want to tell us some more about? Um, yeah, I mean, if we take one uh, lady from the 
before the, the conquest. We have uh, this incredible woman called Chimpuorma. I wouldn't say I particularly relate to her because it's a completely different set of circumstances. Um, but she lived just outside the Inca Empire and was a secondary wife of a very powerful man named Tokai Kapak. And the long and the short of it is that this man decided to kidnap a little Inca prince. And so uh, Chimpuorma convinced her family to go and rescue him. And I admire her because she was just this lowly secondary wife, um, but she still decided to take it upon herself to try and save this boy from his kidnappers. So she was uh, brave enough to risk her position, possibly even her life, and all to save the son of her husband's enemies. And then someone from after the Spanish conquest um, is Beatriz Huaylas, who's not very well known. Yeah, I've chosen quite two quite obscure women because I just love underdogs. That's just how I am. <laughs> but I think she um, illustrates a typical path for Inca women after the conquest. So she first had a child with a high-ranking conquistador. They weren't married. It was just a partnership. And then she was abandoned by him. And then in 1549, a second marriage was forced. Sorry, not a second. Um, yes, she had a first marriage and then a second marriage again to a lower ranking Spaniard. But when they got to the I do bit of the ceremony, she replied in Quechua, maybe I want to, maybe I don't. But the marriage was deemed legal at any rate. So this for me is like an example of how some of the women, we've seen some of the women rebelling, doing massive things, but this is one of the ways where they were using very subtle ways to just show a little bit of their defiance. So she knew she couldn't stop the marriage but at least she could show that she wasn't happy about it. And it's pretty remarkable that these words managed to get into the history books. Well, I want to dig into a little bit about uh, something you mentioned in your book about women and women in the post-conquest uh, era or early colonial period. They really had four outcomes or options once the Spanish arrived. One was commit suicide. Two was to hide and fight. And with some quick skirmishes or guerrilla tactics, uh, three was culturally rebel and four was outright side with the Spanish. The first three options that are mentioned all result in a shorter lifespan than four. So excluding option number one, because we're not that dark on the show, what was the difference between options, say, two and three, hiding and fighting and culturally rebelling? Um, so an example of someone who uh, hid and fought um, from the Spanish and then engaged in these skirmishes is uh, Curiopio. So the areas that they hid in were independent of Spanish rule. So this is looking at the neo-Inca state that you mentioned earlier. So they could lead fairly stable lives out there, hiding away, um, aside from these occasional battles. Um, the neo-Inca state, which was initiated by Curiopio and her husband, Manco Inca, um, carried on for decades. So it, it was fairly sustainable. But in terms of Curi's personal life, she got killed by the Spanish when she was just a young woman. And then if you're thinking about culturally rebelling, um, there's the example of the Takionkoi. So that was even less sustainable than, than hiding away, because these are people who are living straight under um, Spanish rule and yet refusing to live as Catholics. So they're right there out in the open, defying the Spanish. 
So the Taki Onkoi movement lasted less than a decade. And the two women who were at the top of its hierarchy, along with a man, were locked away in a nunnery as punishment. And as I was writing these notes for this, I thought it was quite ironic because some of the Incaran mixed race girls who didn't rebel openly against the Spanish were also sent to nunneries as children to be educated there. And I'm sure they were treated better than the ringleaders of this rebellion. But it's interesting to think that the girls and women could be pushed into a nunnery for for rebelling or actually not rebelling and kind of siding with the Spanish or accepting them. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't sound like whether they rebelled or not, they uh, some things were still forced upon them, whether they, yeah. they liked it or not. So I guess why then I guess, side with the Spanish at all? Uh, was it sort of power? Was it a chance of uh, a longer life or uh, was it some sort of the internal friction between groups within the Inca empire? I think for um, each woman, it's going to be a different set of circumstances because the um, internal um, warring between the pro Atahualpa people and the pro Wascard people to begin with would go a great deal towards um, some women picking that option. Yeah, each woman just ended up allying with the Spanish for, for different reasons. I mean, with Quispe Sisa, it was day one before the Inca empire had even been properly gotten rid of. She, um, she was forced into marrying Francisco Pizarro on Atahualpa's orders himself. So that's how she ended up there. Some of the, some of the people who, some of the, well, girls really, who married the Spanish, it was when they were very young. So again, not a great deal of um, not a great deal of agency and not a great deal of power to resist. Yeah. I guess if you were given the option, hide and fight, culturally rebel, or or side with the Spanish, it's a difficult position to be in, no doubt. But I'm gonna put I'm gonna put you there or, or try to as best we can in modern day. What uh what side, if you had to pick, would you choose? It's not you know, of course, it's not an easy choice at all. It's not gonna many of these uh, stories in your book don't necessarily end well. Yeah. So if I guess if you had to choose, which one would you have to go with? Yeah, so I think this is really hard to say because each woman experienced the Spanish conquest through like a unique set of circumstances. So my personal reaction would depend on what particular circumstances I was in. Um, even the women themselves, you see that they're sometimes allying with the Spanish and then other times not so much like Curioclio initially she's in this alliance and then they break away and and go and form their neo-inca state but certainly um speaking of the neo-inca state if i could like pick a scenario for myself during the spanish conquest um i think the best option would be to be born in the neo-inca state early on in its formation and live out as much of my life there as i could best i could yeah, uh, early part of the neo-Inca state being the the key there, um, not to give anything away. <laughs> <laughs> so we've reached the end of, uh, of my written questions here, Helen, but I do have a follow-up question, one that I didn't touch on. Many of these women who uh, married Spanish conquistadors had children. How were they brought up and raised and, and what happened to, to some of them? 
Um, so these children were generally brought up uh, very much, well, if they, had, if they were living with their fathers, the, the white fathers, they would be brought up as little Spanish children, Catholic. Um, as we said before, they could um, be sent, the girls could be sent into nunneries to really be um, taught to be Catholic and Spanish and all their indigenous heritage was um, tried, to, they tried to stamp out as much as possible. There were, as I mentioned before with Beatriz Huayas, um, some of the conquistadors abandoned the women. So then the woman, there was a potential that she could raise her child in a more indigenous way, but then as we see, further relationships could be forced onto her and then back into the Spanish world, uh, uh, she and the child or children would go. So yeah, that was very much it. And then as we saw with Quispe Sisa, um, she, the Inca mother could lose, um, lose custody of her child altogether. And so then they would very much be um, brought up in a Spanish way. The most famous example, of course, is Quispe's daughter, Francisca Pizarro. And we see through the text that she's very much identifying culturally with the Spanish world. We have a lot of family trees or history of nobles in Europe that you know you can date back to and look at the at the tree the Habsburgs come to mind is there is there such a thing for sort of po post-conquest South America where you know some of these children you can trace back to not necessarily modern day but I guess how how closely to modern day do you think we can get with some of these um, descendants from the Inca um, well, interestingly, when you um, look online, you often will see um, white or mestizo um, South Americans, particularly Peruvian, saying, oh, I, I descend from this um, Inca person. So because as we saw, we were the Inca women were having children with the um, white men. And then generally speaking, those mixed race children were then marrying and having children with with the Spanish people. And so generally that in some ways, some circumstances, the indigenousness was, was lost through the centuries. But there is also um, Tupac Amaru II in the 1700s. He claimed to be able to trace his ancestry back to Piliawas. Oh dear, Anyway, she was one of the daughters of Titukusi, I think it was, from the Neo-Inca state. And um, he was indigenous, so the indigenous line had, had gone right through to that. Yeah, he's certainly uh, a figure that I tend to think of where, and that was um, 17th century or 18th century, I believe. Yeah, uh, 18th century, 1780s was the rebellion. Right, right. Is there anything else about the book in particular that you want to cover or, or uh, a case or an example that you want to give or a woman that you want to quickly give a summary of? Um, I guess we haven't really um, touched on the, the goddesses uh, today. So, and that's really interesting because I guess we've talked a lot about what changed for the indigenous and what was taken away from them, but there are things that have been maintained. People still um, worship Pachamama uh, in South America, um, the nature goddess, mother nature, um, often blending 
worship of her with with uh, Catholicism. Yeah, so that's one of the ways in which um, indigenous practices have persisted. Quechua as well is still spoken in various dialects throughout uh, South America. Yeah, it's a very good uh, point that you bring up that the the blending of sort of the religious practices. We just did an episode on the Cusco Seki system, the system of shrines and wakas sort of radiating out from the Cusco area and how some of those were incorporated into uh, Christianity and some were destroyed and some couldn't be destroyed because they're mountains and, and they still receive offerings. Um, the, the archaeological site that I worked at uh, when I was in Peru, we would find modern day pottery fragments at the site. So still offerings being given in that case and in other cases throughout the Andes. Drinking uh, was told to, you know, pour a little bit out of my cup for Pachamama at the end. And uh, so that is certainly another example of some of indigenous life still uh, shining through. Helen, thank you so much for being on the show with me today. Is there any other? Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Is there anything else you would like to plug, a website where readers can go and purchase your book or any of your other works that you that you have? Um, well, if anyone's interested in um, a book about Inca history for children, um, I have my book, um, Incatastic Tales, um, which is also available um, as an ebook or a paperback. The best place to go for um, the paperbacks would be my um, Amazon page, which is author.to/hpugh um, and then you can find the um, ebooks in uh, Amazon as well. Awesome. Well once again, thank you so much for joining me today, Helen. Thank you. I hope you all enjoyed that interview with Helen Pugh. I was very excited to meet with her and get some more insight into her book. Intrepid Dudettes of the Inca Empire is a very approachable book much more readable than some of the archaeological texts that I sift through. That, and of course the subject itself, makes it a refreshing book to sit and read. If you'd like to purchase the book or pursue some of Helen's other work, I have links in the show notes of this episode. I do have one correction. A day after our interview, Helen emailed me alerting me that she had said the wrong name in regards to whom Tupac Amaro II is descended from. It is Pilco Walco and not Titu Kuzi. It can be difficult to keep lineages straight, something I can certainly relate to at times. A reminder that this is our last episode for the English version of the show this calendar year. The plan, as of right now, is to return in early January with the narrative. However, let's just say it has been a more eventful couple of months than anticipated. If this autumn is of any indication of things to come this winter, I wouldn't be surprised if there are some bumps in the road, so to speak. Either way, you will hear from me in early January. Until then, stay safe and have a great holiday.